Hi, and welcome to Girlboss Radio. I'm Sophia Amoruso. Kidding, I'm not. I'm Jericho Mandiva, the editorial director of Girlboss and the host of that other Girlboss Radio podcast, Self Service, which is your weekly bite of self care, weird wellness, astrology, and more. So I'm filling in for Sophia this week while she's out in the world doing her Girlbossy things. And I'm really excited to talk to our guest today, the CEO and founder of Zola, Shanlin Ma. We'll get to do that in just a minute. But before we do, I want to remind you to check out our other amazing podcasts at Girlboss. We have my show, Self Service, which comes out every Sunday. Our newest show, Jen Gotch is OK Sometimes, which comes out every Tuesday. And there's also Lip Stories, our six-part podcast in partnership with Sephora. You can find all these shows on Apple Podcasts or wherever good podcasts are found. Success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long, we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word, which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Shanlin Ma is the CEO and co-founder of Zola. Shanlin holds a degree in business commerce from the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, and an MBA from Stanford University. After idolizing Yahoo co-founder Jerry Yang for all of her life, she found herself doing an internship at Yahoo and later held product and marketing roles at Yahoo. You know, a lot of people kind of dream one day of being a movie star or they dream of like a very glamorous career. And to me, the most possible, most glamorous thing and the person I really admired was Jerry Yang, who was the founder of Yahoo and really one of the pioneers of the internet revolution. In 2008, she moved on to Gilt, where she started as a product manager and eventually became the senior director of product. She also founded and was the GM of Gilt Taste, the food and wine division. In 2012, Sean went to Chloe and Isabel, but quickly decided that it was time for her to start her own company. Her company, Zola, launched in 2013 and quickly became the country's fastest growing wedding registry. Talking to more and more couples and realised there's a huge opportunity here to use design and technology, which is our skills, to solve this problem. The more we talked about it, the more we were fired up to be the ones to do it because we had the right background and also because it was our friends who were the users and we knew that they deserved better. In April 2017, Sean Lin and her team also released Zola Weddings, a free suite of wedding planning tools. Today, Zola carries 60,000 gifts from more than 600 different brands, and it's been used by over 500,000 couples. On top of all this, Sean is an angel investor in about 15 companies, including several female-founded companies. If you believe it's a VC investment, my advice would be think about the three questions that are on every VC's mind and think about what is your unique answer to those three questions. Today, Shan's here to talk about her journey to becoming an entrepreneur, how to pitch to venture capitalists, and the right way to transition your career. 
We'll get to our conversation with Sean Linmar in just a second. But first, Maggie and I are going to talk about what's going down in the Girlboss offices this week. Hey, hey, Maggie Renshaw. We love Girlboss. That's where we work. <laughs> and we live. How's it going? Oh, good. How you know. What do you want to talk just, about this week? So... I was thinking it'd be really fun to tie in something you talked about on your podcast, Self Service, about microdosing with Angela Ruiz. She's a therapist or psycho. She's an she's an advocate for microdosing, and okay. she was working with a larger organization, and now she's kind of gone off on her own and wanted to start this nonprofit mm-hmm. that brings like microdosing to disadvantaged communities. It's really interesting. Well, you know, I actually was down for microdosing. I was like, oh, this sounds great. Because just a little background, by the way, it's microdosing is essentially taking a small amount of like a psychedelic substance and, and using it and ingesting it. But it's you don't actually feel the side effects mm-hmm. um, of a hallucinogenic or of like a psychedelic drug. You don't have those effects. And if you do, then you've you've taken too much. But yes. microdosing is just like a way for people to... It's battling anxiety and depression. That's the those are the new findings, right? Mm, yeah, there's like all this new research being done about the mental health benefits of mm-hmm. taking like what they call sub perceptual amounts, and there's also kind of the creative benefits. Um, people in like Silicon Valley types are like doing it because they think that it helps their kind of innovation. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I guess good all around spiritual benefits obviously it's cool because normally you think of it as a party drug and actually it's not it's in in more of the science realm it's something that can actually help you and keep you motivated but my question is so aren't these drugs illegal so i was down for microdosing until i realized that it's illegal and then i was like oh wait a minute never mind yeah it's funny because like (laughs) the whole conversation about microdosing that's happening right now it's like but you can't get them unless you're willing to like do an illegal act Mm, which is like buy drugs Mm -mm. So nobody's really talking about that in like all the think pieces, but like that's kind of, that should be said. Okay, but aren't doctors prescribing these or is it just all case studies as of now? It would be really careful language around working with the doctor. So the doctor would say, if this is something that you're interested in trying, which I completely don't condone and will not be supplying you with the substances in which to do so, then I'll help you talk about how it's going and make sure that you're kind of quote unquote like monitored. Interesting. the only people that could probably justify getting them legally would be like the the universities researching mm, okay. the effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds dangerous. But mm-hmm. you know, I did have a friend. Um, he went to Peru and had ayahuasca trips, oh, and yeah. he said, "Yeah, and and it's it's very spiritual. It's not just like a party and a half. It's it's like a." a transformation people go to like learn something about themselves you have a shaman who's with you through the whole thing so he told me that it was really life-changing he saw things in his life that he'd never experienced or that he experienced but like in a new way Mm -hmm. so it's like he was kind of an outer body watching his life and learning things about Mm -hmm. himself that he didn't even know which is really cool that's such a common theme in ayahuasca stories Mm -hmm. as well isn't it like you have the chance to have this like like godlike vision of your own Mm -hmm. self and like your place in the world and your decisions and you like relive them with like this new perspective I know and it sounds really difficult Mm -hmm. but I think if you're like if you personally were like willing to do that and like pull yourself through what could be like very stressful Mm -hmm. you come out the other side with this like inner 
peace and wisdom that like people just like can't stop talking about. And I it's know. like, I'm so curious. I am too. Granted, that's not microdosing. You can't do, you're not a functional no. adult on that. That'd be a macrodose. <laughs> For sure. So it's different, but still I hear those realms of like psychedelic drugs changing people sometimes for the better like Mm -hmm. giving them a new perspective on themselves which Mm -hmm. is kind of interesting hey that is so interesting thank you for bringing that up hey no problem hey if you want to hear more Mm -hmm. just listen to the self-service episode with angela ruiz you can also visit girlboss.com and just type in why is everyone into microdosing right now Now get ready to hear from CEO and co-founder of Zola, Shanlin Ma. So Sean, you were born in Singapore and raised in Australia, like me. Where are you from in Sydney? I grew up in Sydney in Lane Cove. Mm-hmm. Do you Got know it. where that is? I know exactly. <laughs> I'm not from Sydney originally, but I was. I lived in Marrickville. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was that like growing up? Well, Lane Cove, you know, the growing up, it was a very um, sleepy suburb. And my <laughs> one of my friends who also lived in Lane Cove, we used to call it the retirement village, which was a nickname <laughs> for it because everyone was, it was just a very slow moving suburb. Everyone was kind of generally older. Um, but I think over the years, a lot of younger people have now moved in. So it's slightly more interesting, but not not a lot. I, I tried to move out pretty quickly into other parts of Sydney. Yeah, fair enough. And what was your first ever job? I always remember you know, my the first time I was really able and allowed in quotation marks allowed to get a proper job was in my first year of undergrad college or in Australia you know we call it uni and so I was 17 and I was so excited to be able to have proper job I actually had three different jobs at the same time in that first year one of them was as a pizza waitress at Gourmet Pizza Kitchen, which is kind of like California Pizza Kitchen in the US, but it was in Australia. Um, So I was a waitress. I was also working in a company that taught economics to high school students. Um, And so, you know, really excited to do a lot of different things to both earn money because I was supporting myself through university, but also just get out there in the world and get started. What made you want to move to the US after uni? I had always wanted to work in a place where the action was happening. And when I was growing up and after college or even throughout my childhood, I was reading a lot about very nerdy things. Like I would read business magazines and started to learn about the tech revolution that was underway in Silicon Valley. Um, I know, you know, a lot of people kind of dream one day of being a movie star or they dream of like a very glamorous career. And to me, the most possible, most glamorous thing and the person I really admired was Jerry Yang, who was the founder of Yahoo and really one of the pioneers of the internet revolution. <laughs> When Shan Lin was little, she had a poster of Jerry Yang, the co-founder of Yahoo, up on her wall. Many years later, she went on to work there. 
If you ask me, that's some pretty powerful manifestation. And she revealed how important the power of visualization has been to her career and if she still uses it today. You know, I always did that kind of thing, but I don't think I did it purposely. But in retrospect, I found it really helpful. Um, and so, yeah, I would, you know, I would have that picture of Jerry Yang on my wall and think about how could I one day be like him. I actually remember during the period of time when I was trying to get myself to the U.S., I saw my way into technology and into the U.S. was by applying to business schools here. And so I applied to a bunch of different business schools, but the way that I really kept myself motivated to do everything you need to do to get in, which it's a long, hard process, um, was I <laughs> I would tape up pictures of Stanford Business School also on my bedroom wall and kind of look at it and remind myself why I was working so hard to try to get there. Um, and And so in retrospect, that worked out really well. I was so lucky to get in and and I think since then I've always you know had visual reminders of things that I'm working towards and that has helped me get there. Shanlin has her MBA from Stanford University which is super impressive. She shared what the MBA has done for her and her career and whether she'd recommend it to other potential entrepreneurs out there. I found that when I started doing my MBA at Stanford Business School, my entire life changed for the better. And and so I think for everyone, it's a very personal decision. But the reasons that I went for it, that it, the reasons why it made sense for me was specific to my background. I knew what I wanted. I wanted to be in, I wanted to be a technology entrepreneur and I wanted to be the next Jerry Yang. And the challenge for me was that I didn't know how to get there. And I didn't really have anyone who had ever done anything like that. I didn't know anyone who had ever worked in technology, who had ever worked in the US. I didn't know um, anyone who could even advise me on how to take the first step. And so what I saw was what I read in the mag business magazines, which was all these great entrepreneurs went to Stanford and a lot of tech companies came out of there. And so I thought that that seems to be the only way I could possibly get into that industry. And so I want to go to Stanford. And by the way, I think part of what my mother did to me from a very early age was she kind of, in you know, it was like, like inception where she would tell me from when I was really young, she would always say, you know, one day you'll go to the US and you'll get your MBA and you'll have a fantastic career and I never knew what she was you know where she got that from because we had never known anyone who had done that but I think part of her saying that to me and it's like a natural thing that you'd say to any young girl is that it just made me think it was really doable mm, yeah amazing I love that subliminal messaging for moms <laughs> where it's like it no pressure cool but yeah it worked <laughs> yeah. And then once I was there, the the thing that was really life changing for me, well, there was there's so many things that really changed how I look at my life and, and what I want to be working on. But some of the top things that come to mind are I um, got exposure to a lot of different people 
who I found were just like me in that they were passionate about starting things, starting companies, building products that would change the world. They were motivated and driven to work really hard to make it happen. And then there was exposure to all these entrepreneurs who had either built big, huge companies um, like Andy Grove, who who had built Intel, or right through to you know founders of Bare Minerals, right, the makeup brand. Who and at that time it was still pretty early in the journey of that brand, and she was talking about what it was like to get it off the ground. And so, see, just seeing that huge spectrum of entrepreneurs made me feel like you know if they can do it, if they can break down all the steps that they took to start their company, then it feels like maybe I could too. Shaolin landed her dream internship and later job at Yahoo. In order to do this, she had to make herself stand out in front of the droves of other applicants. I asked her how she made herself stand out and what advice she'd give for other people who were looking for their first job. So I did my summer internship at Yahoo during the two years of business school. And I think the way that, the reason why I think I got the opportunity to do that internship was because I was so obsessed with Yahoo. <laughs> I think they were like, well, if this person, if this girl has really been thinking about it for years and years and years, then maybe we should give her a shot. And, you know, normally as a person, I'm pretty, um, I would say, you know, uh, shy to admit that I have been following and obsessing over something for years but in that interview I was like this is really the only time that I'll get to tell someone how passionate I am about the exact thing that they're working on the exact company they work in I'm just going to tell them and I think that really helped me stand down against everyone else that was also interviewing that once I was in the internship I I think the reason why ultimately I got an offer to come back full-time after business school at Yahoo was because I worked my guts out (laughs) for the entire summer. And I, I saw, you know, my project was really how can we get up and running a small test of a new online ad product? You know, at that time I was on a team that was really competing vigorously against Google in the advertising space. And it was hard because Google is a formidable competitor, as we all can now clearly see. You know, what I learned both during those three months and then in the years when I went back to Yahoo was how to think about who really is the end customer that you're building a product for. How do you deeply understand those needs? How can you develop a solution to those needs and problems and then get it tested really quickly in the market. And because I was able to bring that test to market within three months and get real results and then share them, um, that was something actually I think very few other interns were able to do that summer. Um, that I think that determination where I would work every night late into the night to try to make sure I had companies that would do the test with me. I, you know, I, I learned a great deal, um, but one of the other benefits was that it showed people that I was willing to really get stuff done no matter how hard it was. Yeah, and it's a little bit like when you think about customers, isn't it? Like when you think about like your your intern employers, it's like fulfill a need, <laughs> like anticipate that and, yeah. you know, you're in a good place. 
so you had this amazing dream job at Yahoo and then you left. So I was wondering, like, how do you know when you've outgrown your role? Mm -hmm. Especially when it's something that you, like, work so hard to get to. For me, the the first few years of um, my work at Yahoo was time that I think back on all the time because I learned from the greatest product leaders how to create products that customers love. And it was the best training um, because of the people that I was working for who were teaching me exactly <laughs> what to do. Um, and the and then I kind of you know, was switched into a different team. I then had another great leader and manager, was learning, was excited. During that time, Yahoo's a company went through a lot of different leaders and managers. There was, you know, just movement around the company. People would leave. And at some point I got put under a manager who was not great. And I I remember distinctly I did this project and I kind of knew that I was half-assing it. I knew it wasn't the best work that I had done. And the manager called me and he was like, this is so great. Did you do this? I, you know, this is the best. And I was, that to me was the sign that it was time to go because I knew that, you know, that person wouldn't be pushing me to be better and that they were, you know, kind of accepting work that actually I knew if I was them, I probably wouldn't accept. So I knew that was a good sign. Um, I wanted to go back to working for, for great people that I would then learn from. When Shanlin left Yahoo, she went on to Gilt as a product manager. She wanted the job so badly that she flew herself to New York to meet with Alexis Maybank. Shan revealed why she decided to do that and how you know when it's the right time to make a major leap. At that time, I was actually looking at different startups. I had you know, decided that I would love to work in an earlier stage startup that, that has much less people where I could be closer to um, the actual product that I would work on, where I could get product changes out faster and, and really learn what it's like to start a startup in the early days. And so I had been interviewing with a bunch of different startups in Silicon Valley and they were great startups, great teams, but I found there was no role that I was interviewing for there that I leapt out of my skin to really you know, love and want to do desperately. And the the guilt opportunity um, came up really because I was a customer first. I was shopping on the guilt site every day and that was when guilt.com had just launched. So it was uh, still somewhat of a secret and I loved the product and I looked at the team page and I realized the team was incredibly impressive. I thought I would love to work for that team and learn from them. And then found the job description, the role of being the first product person at Gilt to be the most exciting prospect in the world. And it kind of, that was the type of the job that I thought to myself, I would do that even if they didn't pay me. I would do that for free. <laughs> And because I I was such a passionate customer, I thought I think in my spare time about how guilt.com can be better 
even even though I'm not even working there yet. So can you imagine, like, what kind of job, what kind of great job is this where they would actually pay me and I could do that all day and, uh, you know, and actually be a part of it. So that's how excited I was by the opportunity and, and then thought I have to do everything I possibly can to get the job, including flying myself there. I think, you know, that worked. Sean worked for many years at Gilt as a senior director of product. During her time there, she also founded and was the GM of Gilt Taste, a food and wine division, which eventually shut down. She opened up about this and how the failure of Gilt Taste made her stronger both personally and professionally. That is still one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do and had to um, to work through. And the reason it was so hard, it was because it was so, and it's so personal. So the the way that guilt taste came about was that I was in a brainstorming meeting with one of the founders of guilt, who was brainstorming with different people and different teams. What other categories and businesses could guilt groups start? And in one of those brainstorming sessions, um, the idea of oh, you know, food and wine and you know, that, that as a business is interesting. I was so passionate about it. I went up to Kevin Ryan, who was, you know, who was the chairman and founder of Guild. And I said, you know, I love this idea so much. I'm just going to work on it in my spare time and on weekends, um, because I find it really interesting. And he said, you know, don't take too long before you come and share with me what you're thinking about. Uh, you know, we should just check on check in on on what you're thinking about pretty regularly. So I started, you know, at late at night and on weekends, I would kind of put together ideas around what is missing in the market. What would we create if we could create any kind of incredible food and wine site? What would you want to read about? What would you want to see? What would you want to buy? And how could we make this different to anything else out there online? So over the course of putting together that concept, I would meet with Kevin. He would give me feedback, like think about, you know, think about fulfillment, think about margins, think about, you know, how, what is the minimum viable product? And we would do this process over the course of a few months. And before I knew it, I had... (laughs) actually put together kind of a presentation or a PowerPoint deck that was really outlining this new business concept and got the green light to then one day launch it as a real business and hire a team and bring it to life. And I think no one was more surprised than I was (laughs) that that actually was even an option, that it could be a real business or like something that could go from idea to implementation. And because it was so personal and was something I had been thinking about day in, day in, all day, all night, every weekend for a couple of months, it felt like it was a part of me. So then, you know, fast forward a few months in, I was able to bring on great um, leading names in the food world, an incredible team that I loved in every function from merchandising to engineering to editorial to design. And and we we got a lot of great coverage, a lot of great user feedback. 
and and started to see interesting growth. But then at some point, Gilt as a company decided, you know, it wasn't the right thing for Gilt to focus on. And, you know, it was hard to debate that. If I was running Gilt as a company, I might have, might have, you know, kind of agreed. So ultimately, the business I was working on, which was the food business, as you know, Gilt as a company decided to deprioritize that and over time close it down. And that was devastating. As part of the kind of guilt course of business, there were people that we had to let go in my business unit and other business units, which was one of the worst days of my working life. And so having gone through that experience of like formation, um, growth, success, and then you know having to fire people, having to essentially see the business go in the opposite direction still is really tough just because um, there was it was something that I put so much of myself and so much of other great people's hearts into. We'll be back with Sean Lin in just a moment. But first, let's talk about Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning platform with over 20,000 classes in business, in marketing, in technology, in design, and in many more things. You can take classes in social media marketing, data science, web development, you name it, they've got it. So whether you're exploring a new passion or you want to develop a professional skill set or start a side hustle, Skillshare is there to keep you learning and thriving. What I love about Skillshare is how diverse their course selection is. They have classes on literally everything from learning a peaceful practice of breath meditation or this one I really love called how to establish and maintain personal boundaries, which we can really all do with, right? So whatever you're interested in or need to learn about, they've got a class for you. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. That's right. Skillshare is offering Girlboss listeners two months of unlimited access to over 20,000 classes for just 99 cents. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Charlene Ma. I really think the the most valuable lesson for me that I want to make sure I never repeat again if I possibly can is to is to always fully understand the business model and how a given business or an idea is going to be profitable and sustainable over the long run. And that was the one thing which I didn't spend as much of my time focusing on when I was first coming up with the food and wine business idea. And I think ultimately, if I had done that work, I might have made different decisions around the number of people that we needed on the team or um, the number of the, the types of products that we would offer on the site. And so now in all my, you know, in, in Zola, um, which is the business that, that we started a few years after that, um, I I did a lot of thinking around not just what is a product that users will love 
and how is it going to capture the, the hearts and the imaginations of people, but also what is a business model that is going to be sustainable, that's going to work over the long term, um, that can really support both the team and the company and the customers for a very long time. You know, like many successful startups, often, you know, it, we started Zola out of personal need. Um, so the year that we started Zola was 2013, which was also the year that all my friends got married at exactly the same moment in time. <laughs> Many of us have had that year where you're going, it feels like you're going to a wedding every weekend. You're buying a lot of presents from a lot of wedding registries. And that year, I, was, I remember shopping on the different wedding registries of my closest friends. They were registered you know, at that time at the big department stores. And I was so annoyed with them. I was really pissed off because it was just the worst e-commerce shopping experiences I had ever seen. And I worked in e-commerce for a while at that point. So I was like, I know that they deserve better. I deserve better. Why is it so bad? I started asking my friends, what is going on with your registry? And actually was shocked at, at what they would reply. They would say things like, Oh, it was so hard and so painful that I, my mother set it up because I couldn't handle it and I don't even know what's on my registry. Or, you know, some people would say, oh, it's like I've never had so many fights with my fiancé as we had over our registry. And it just seemed to be <laughs> like crazy because it was one of those opportunities where it could be a really special moment where I wanted to give something really meaningful to my closest friends as they were getting married on a really big moment in their life. And I couldn't and they couldn't be on the receiving end of that. And it was so it was frustrating all around. And I thought, you I, I, I spoke to Nobu, who's my co-founder, and he's married. And he was telling me all these stories about when he got married how he and his wife nearly got divorced over their wedding registry. And we we started talking to more and more couples and realized there's a huge opportunity here to use design and technology, which is our skills, to solve this problem. Um, and we, the more we talked about it, the more we were fired up to be the ones to do it because we had the right background and also because it was our friends who were the users and we knew that they deserved better. Sean and her co-founder Nobu worked together previously at Gilt and are still currently working together very happily at Zola. Finding the right person to partner with when you're starting something is vital to its success. I asked Sean to share her tips for fellow entrepreneurs on how to find the appropriate partner. I will always say one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life is is and was working with Nobu, uh, both during our time working together at Gilt and our time working together at Zola. It has made all the difference in the world to both me and the team and the company. Um, and so there's a couple of things here. I think one is that I picked Nobu and I picked to work together again and actually wanted to work together again because of the experience that we had previously working at Gilt where we found we were able to create great products together and we both loved the work that we were able to do together we liked the style of working together 
And we found that we were able to do great work that won awards when we combined forces. And so I think when you have something like that, it's, it's, it's then really hard to go off and work with someone else in that same capacity because you're, you, you're kind of always comparing and being like, oh, well, you know, well, what about when I was working with Nobu? And so yeah, we, I kind of had that. And at one point after we had both been working at different companies, we caught up for lunch and started saying, you know, we've always talked about working together again and starting something. Why don't we just do that? And it was really at that lunch we decided, yes, let's like stop the madness. We know we work well together. Let's do that. Um, and that was one of the defining moments uh, in starting Zola. Sean has a rich background working in product. She talked about how that experience has informed her style as a CEO and how it helped her as the founder of Zola. I think one of the reasons that I felt and no one I felt um, we were the right people to to work on the wedding registry industry is because we thought it was fundamentally it's like a product driven problem where we saw the products out there and we saw that the thing that will win in this market is the best product and that's kind of different to other markets like some other markets what might win in another market is the best possible technology or in another market it's you know, the best possible supply chain operation. And for us in this particular industry, in this particular kind of wedding registry or wedding planning market, what the thing people will choose will be the easiest, most beautiful, fun product. And we knew that we could really nail that. And so then that's when we knew we were the right founders for this market. Um, but don't get me wrong, it, what we're working on also requires great tech, great merchandising, great supply chain logistics. All that is required, but that's not why people pick Zola. Our customers pick us not because of our supply chain. They just assume that will work, but they pick us because our product is different and better. And so that um, that's how we knew we were the right founders for this particular uh, problem to solve. Since starting Zola and, and maybe like even a bit into the future, how do you think the wedding industry and when it comes to like, you know, planning and registry in particular, like how do you think that's changing and evolving? There's actually been a huge amount of change in the wedding space in the last generation getting married. So right now, millennials are the ones getting married. <laughs> They're at that age where it feels like if you're either getting married or you're about to get married. And um, the this is unlike any previous generation because, you know, our parents and our grandparents and every generation before that, the average age that someone would get married would be 20 or 21. And this is really the first time where the average age of someone getting married has jumped up in a huge way to like 28, 29, 30 and so just that alone has had a huge impact on weddings and marriage. Now the vast majority of people live together before they get married. Um, so they have, you know, stuff in their home already. And, and people really care about now experiences as well as things. So what we see 
in the weddings industry and in the wedding registry industry is that we see the, all these changes have meant that um, what it means to get married is fundamentally different. What it means to register is really different. You know, everyone today wants to register for products and experiences and cash and they want it all in the one place and they want it to be beautiful and they want it to be easy. And so we just, we focus every day um, at Zola on how do we deliver that in the best possible way. Hiring diversely is hugely important at Zola. Their leadership team is over 50% women, which is just the kind of stat we like to hear. And the entire company is very diverse in terms of gender, race, religion, and sexual orientation. Shan says that this diverse team is one of the secrets to Zola's success. So I asked Shan to offer her tips for business owners and founders out there who are looking to replicate the Zola model. Diversity is something that is really important to to me personally, to Nobu and to I think almost everyone at Zola uh, because we have a really diverse team. Um, so our leadership team, you're right, is over 50% women uh, and the entire company is very diverse in terms of gender, race, religion, sexual orientation. Um, we, the, and I, I and I think everyone fully believes that the the diversity that we have in both the people and the thinking actually leads us to better decision making and ultimately is a big one of the secrets of our success so far. And the way that we try to make sure we we have that diversity is we do a couple of things. So one is for each key role that I'm involved in, I will always ask or talk about or try to make sure that we have a diverse slate of candidates that we're interviewing. So right now I'm, you know, helping and involved in a couple of different roles that we're hiring for. And I'm looking at the people, the list of candidates that we're talking to. And I am consciously making sure that we are talking to a range of, of, of different backgrounds, you know, across all those dimensions I just mentioned. Um, so it starts at interviewing. It also um, means that at the leadership team, we are actively talking about for every person that then gets hired, if that somehow changes our diversity mix, how what what more could we be doing to attract more diverse candidates? If we didn't see enough diversity in the applicant pool, how can we be more proactive about that? And... And I think just um, communicating to the team and to everyone interviewing again and again and again for every role, this is important to us. Over time, um, it's something everyone unconsciously starts to look out for. But first of all, we have to make it conscious. So again, not perfect, but trying, pushing ourselves. And I think we are we are better than than the average there, but want to, but continually want to be better. And what advice for your, do you have for people that are thinking about raising VC funding, but like don't quite understand what that involves? Like, what was that process like for you? And how do you really like, what impresses VCs? Yeah, I always encourage people who are thinking about either starting a startup 
or raising funding for that startup before you even raise your first dollar or even have your first conversation with the VC to actually really ask yourself and look very deep within yourself um, on this question of are you really going to commit your most valuable resource? So you are your own investor. And if you're going to start a startup, you are essentially saying to yourself, I'm going to commit to this one and only thing for at least the next decade of my life. It's going to be all consuming 24 seven, nothing but this for the most part. (laughs) Is this the thing that I want to pick? And and if so, why? And do I really feel so much conviction around this one idea that I'm devoting my most valuable resource in the world to it, which is my time? And I think that question is actually the most important thing to answer for yourself before you, you go any further. But I think once then you you if if you say, yes, I do think this is the best possible thing I could be doing because I feel so strongly about it and I have a lot of conviction, I have data, I have you know, rationale around why this is best use of my time. And then uh, if you believe it's a VC um, investment, my advice would be think about the three questions that are on every VC's mind and think about what is your unique answer to those three questions. And so the three questions always are, and these questions can be asked in a multitude of different ways, but it kind of boiled down to the same thing, which is one, why you? So why are you the best possible person to be starting this particular idea in this particular market, given your background, training and skills and experience? The second question is, why now? So why is now the right time for this idea? You can be pretty certain that every single idea has been thought of hundreds of times for many, many years. So there's very rarely new ideas, but there is windows of time where a certain idea is more um, relevant and timely than others. So why is now the time for this idea? And then the third question is, as a VC, how much money are you going to make me? What is what is this business going to do? And how am I going to return money to my own investors? Because every VC has their own set of investors behind them that they need to be held accountable to. And so that's where it's a, you know, a lot of thinking about the business model and the operating costs and how is this going to be a huge multi-billion dollar business? Because that's what you need to demonstrate if you're raising VC funding. Um, and once you have good, clear, uh, unique answers to those questions, then I think you're ready to have a first meeting with a VC. Amazing. That's so, so interesting. We ask this question to all guests on Govos Radio. What does success mean to you? Success is really, for me, getting to work with and alongside great people that I am learning from every day and that can, that, that can teach me and that I can teach them. Um, and, and together we can build something greater than what we could have built individually. 
Before she left, Sean revealed one of her all-time girl boss moments. I think this is my girl boss moment of my decade, <laughs> which is, yeah, so I, I shared with you that in Australia, I'm growing up thinking about what would I like to do with my life? I had Jerry Yang posted on my bedroom wall uh-huh. as my hero and idol and wanted to be like him. And he was the reason that I went to work at Yahoo. It's my dream job and dream company. Mm-hmm. And recently I got to meet him in person, one-on-one, and talk to him about what I was building at Zola and I nearly passed out from the excitement. <laughs> that is so cool. Did you tell him about the poster on your wall? I did not. <laughs> not <Fair> directly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's fine. That's just between us <laughs> and everyone listening. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us on Girlboss Radio today. And thank you for allowing me to fill in for Sophia and be your host. It's been a pleasure. You can subscribe, rate, review, and tell your friends. But also be sure to check out our other newest podcast, Jen Gotcha's Okay Sometimes. It's live on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen right now. And you can also listen to self-service with Jericho Mandibur, me, our awesome self-care and astrology podcast. And don't forget about hashtag lip stories. Talk to you soon. Bye.